Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening, as together we continue to navigate life during confinement. With the official summer break in order for young students now, we have an ideal book recommendation. Earlier this year, Harper Collins released the young adult novel Yes, No, Maybe So by Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed. The authors have an international following, and they live here in Atlanta. Their teenage protagonists also live in suburban Atlanta. It's summertime. And they become involved in a local campaign, even though they're too young to vote. The book has won widespread critical acclaim, and we'll hear why young adult readers who don't know Atlanta are equally engaged with the story. Jess Graves is a noted tastemaker and writer. Her online publication, Homebody, offers tips on making the best with what we have while sheltering in place. First, coloring books aren't only for kids. Adult coloring books have been available for several years and highly recommended to relieve stress. No wonder the activity is popular with all age groups. Coloring is fun and engaging. With that in mind, Explore Georgia, part of the state's tourism department, has created a coloring book to help parents engage and stimulate kids' imaginations without leaving the house. Megan Hood leads creative content for the state's tourism division. She joins me now with Mariana Costa of the Blue Sky Agency in Atlanta. Thanks for Zooming in and welcome to City Lights. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us, Lois. Before we get to coloring books, what resources can we find on the Explore Georgia website? 
On the Explore Georgia website, you can find all sorts of travel information about every part of the state of Georgia. ExploreGeorgia.org is the primary source for all travel in Georgia, so you can find inspiration about new ideas and places to travel all the way from the mountains down to our coast, through all the cities, through the southern part of our state. Um, we have lots of wonderful travel ideas and trip inspiration there. Mm. Now, how has the website been modified to accommodate those still sheltering in place? Yeah, when COVID-19 first started um, impacting Georgia, we looked at the Explore Georgia website and realized that it was really important for us to share travel information um, related to the pandemic, but we also started realizing that there was an opportunity to still continue to inspire people and share information about this beautiful state with them. You know, people were looking um, and spending more time on digital media and their social feeds, and we realized really quickly that there was an opportunity to give them a respite from all the craziness um, that was happening in the world and to inspire them with the beautiful um, sights and sounds and places throughout the state. I have to confess, I got rather lost with enjoyment looking at the different spots around the state from the coastal isles to the mountains and Savannah and, of course, Atlanta, and then the Providence Canyon, that's some place we've never been where I really want to go. Yeah, it's really stunning. And there's, I mean, I was born and raised here and I'm still discovering places in the state. And that's really um, one of our biggest moments of pride is when we can introduce even native Georgians to new places they've never seen before. So we can explore Georgia from home with this guide. Would you tell us about the official 2020 travel guide? Yeah, absolutely. The um, 2020 Travel Guide um, from Explore Georgia is a comprehensive resource to travel the state. This year's guide is really special because the vast majority of photography in the guide comes from real visitors who have traveled the state, and it's all of their photography, so it's all user-generated content. Even the cover of the guide comes from real people having real travel experiences, and that's really important to us because um, nothing is more interesting than, you know, getting a recommendation from a friend and knowing that they've been to that place and really enjoyed it. So using other people's photography in this guide was really important to us. There is a page on the website titled, Learn From Home with Georgia Chefs. Who are some of those chefs? Yeah, so we were able to source information from chefs all over the state. There's a great chef right here in Pont City Market. He was giving lessons about uh, how to make great sandwiches. There's um, a chef down in St. Simons Island who was helping people learn how to make pasta. So, you know, these wonderful chefs throughout the state are really helping Georgians, you know, while they're at home, learn new tools and skills. So it's been really fun to kind of follow along with them. Mariana, how did the collaboration between Explore Georgia and the Blue Sky Agency come about? Well, we knew through this time that none of us were really experts at marketing. <laughs> you know, we were in this new normal, but we knew we had to stay connected. And we really wanted to make sure that even though we couldn't tell them to go out and explore the state, 
they still stayed engaged in exploring from home. That was the big challenge, right? So what we wanted to do through things like the coloring book and engaging the chefs, because we knew that social activity and digital activity was up something like 30, 40%. And that's how people were connecting with each other and staying informed. Things like uh, knowing that the kids were home, right, from school and parents needed things to do, knowing that everybody was cooking more, which is how we engaged the chefs. Uh, we wanted to play off this new normal to keep people connected and keep them engaged and bring a little brand closeness so we can tell them to uh, go out and explore the state, right? We really had to be humans here and connect not as marketers, but as humans. And I think we came together really well to do that. Oh, I love it that you're acknowledging marketers aren't human. <laughs> yeah. No, just kidding. <laughs> we are, we are, sometimes. <laughs> How did Blue Sky identify the places in Georgia to highlight for the coloring book and the digital puzzles? Well, we had to listen, right? We, we listened uh, to really know what people were missing, the places that they were wanted to explore after this was all over. We do have some knowledge on a few things that, uh, you know, like Driftwood Beach, and we had put out some content of 30-second videos of spots in the state that you could go tune in on our social channels and listen to the, the water come in at Driftwood Beach or, you know, the mountains of Georgia. So... We picked some beautiful places that we knew people loved, but also places that would cue somebody wanting to go to explore after this was all over. Mm. Do you think incorporating digital elements will remain a part of Explore Georgia? Yeah, digital elements have always been part of our marketing mix for Explore Georgia. It's an incredibly important element and when we were developing all these new tools within the Explore Georgia from Home campaign, we really had an eye on that for the future to make sure that we could continue to use these really creative and innovative approaches. So for instance, you know, the coloring pages are definitely something that we could print out and offer to guests when they come through our welcome centers. We have 11 welcome centers throughout the state at all the borders. So that would be a great resource to hand to a family when they come through to look for information and pick up some brochures and take a rest on their trip. And we can print out those coloring pages at home. Yes, absolutely. You can print the coloring pages at home if you go to exploregeorgia.org forward slash from home. You can download the pages and each page has um, a little factoid on it. So they're great as an education piece for kids, but they're also really appropriate for adults to color in as well. And the coloring pages are also made from real um, photos that guests took, that visitors took when they were visiting the state. So you've got some from the aquarium, Okefenokee Swamp, Tybee Island, all of people's favorite places throughout the state. Yeah, I can't wait to color the Callaway Gardens page, and I also like the Tiny Doors and the Providence Canyon page. Yes, Providence Canyon is one of my favorite coloring pages. It's really, really fun, especially if you get your watercolors out. Oh, my. I have a lot of crayons. <laughs> haven't moved on to watercolors yet. What do you think travel and hiking will look like for the rest of this summer. 
Yeah, travel in Georgia for the rest of the summer, I think it's, you know, it's a little unpredictable. We know through our research that people are wanting to get out, that they're desperate to get out and travel, but they also are waiting to do so until they feel safe. Um, We also know that folks are looking to stay a lot closer to home and to get out and to explore the outdoors. So Georgia, you know, has wonderful assets for that between our state parks and our beaches and our mountains. You know, there's wonderful places, right, where people can get out but still, you know, be safe and maintain social distance, but, you know, get out and kind of shake off those indoor willies a little bit, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been very enjoyable. Megan Hood, Mariana Costa, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. It's our pleasure. Megan Hood is with the State Tourism Board and Director of Brand Strategy for Explore Georgia. Mariana Costa is the Executive Creative Director for Blue Sky Agency. There's more information about their virtual programs on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Homebody is an online publication created by Atlanta journalist and tastemaker Jess Graves. Her posts are about making the best with whatever we have while sheltering in place. When City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Jess about her new website, She explained the difference between a blogger and an online publication writer. I think these days the term blogger has sort of transformed into meaning the sort of outfit bloggers to a lot of people, the girls who are sort of taking pictures of themselves and publishing what they're wearing and, you know, asking people to click their links and things like that. And I think these days, a lot of the time, people associate that word with blogger more. Um, it's become almost synonymous with influencer, whereas a lot of the online publications are essentially magazines, but they just don't have, you know, they're not printed. Um, they're online. And I mean, you know, I wrote for magazines for years. I still do. It, the great thing about an online publication is you don't have column inches to worry about or a, a limitation of words or you don't have to cut photos out. Um, so I think a lot of the time they're publications in the same sense as anything else um, as a magazine or a newspaper or something like that. They just happen to be digital. And I think when you have writers and contributors and editors and photographers and things like that, that's what more makes an online publication to me and a blogger is more of an individual pursuit a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So how do you describe your publication? Like, what is your title? We're a newsletter. We go out over email every week and the content then flows online just so people, if they want to share the links or something like that, there's somewhere for it to be, for it to live. But we really live in your inbox. And that's the really cool thing that I like about it. I've worked in marketing for 15 years in a lot of different capacities and in journalism. And I've seen a lot of different social media networks come and go. And the thing that freaks me out about something like Instagram or Twitter is that you don't own those followers. And with an email list, 
you have those people's email addresses forever. And whether Instagram goes away tomorrow or not, I can still contact all the people that want to hear from me. I can also guarantee that it goes straight to their inbox and that they see it because a lot of the time with the algorithms of different social media networks, people don't even see all your content without you, you know, paying a lot of money for them to see it. So we really focus on email and I honestly love it because our readers are really engaged. They can reply directly and they'll get me. And it gives us a lot of creative freedom in terms of how we want to lay things out and how we want to tell stories. Right. Yeah. Influencer is a very millennial or Gen Zer kind of term for older generations that might be unfamiliar with what an influencer is. How would you describe that? I think an influencer is somebody these days is somebody that is leveraging their taste and point of view to sell you something. A lot of the time they work with brands and they're, you know, they're wearing an outfit and they say, these shoes are by, you know, Steve Madden, click this link and <laughs> you buy these Steve Madden shoes. And then, you know, on the back end, they capture a sale. And from the front end, you know, the follower, the person who's engaging with that influencer gets the benefit of, you know, their edit, their point of view. To me, that's a really simplified version of what it is. And I feel like influencers, for the most part, live on Instagram more than anywhere else. It's become a, a term really closely associated with that network. Right. Along with like looking aesthetically pleasing all the time. <laughs> yeah. I actually think of sort of online talent in a couple of different categories. And I think there is a vanity-based influencer out there. And then there's a talent-based influencer. And a lot of the time, the vanity-based influencer is um, a little bit more about me, me, me. <laughs> what I'm wearing, what I'm doing, what my makeup is. And that is a formula that works. It makes a lot of money. And then on the flip side, um, there's a talent-based influencer, which is somebody who is an artist or a chef or somebody sort of out there that's living their life um, and sharing it online. And they've gathered a following simply because their life is cool. Would you say like yoga instructors, fitness trainers, that sort of thing would also fall into a talent influencer category? Totally. I think anybody who's marketing a real skill that they have is a talent-based influencer. And it's also not to say that the, some of the people, uh, the more traditional bloggers aren't also talent-based influencers. There's a lot of um, bloggers out there that own small businesses, that have shops, that put together beautiful tables, who are great cooks, who develop recipes. There's definitely sort of an overlap, but I think anybody who is on Instagram and online and sort of engages with that world knows the difference in what I'm talking about, because there are some people who do it in a way that makes you feel icky, and there are some people who do it in a way that makes you feel served. And, you know, with Homebody especially, the whole point for me was to make people feel served, give them something right now rather than asking. What influenced you to create this weekly email newsletter, Homebody, at the beginning of the quarantine? Honestly, I had a website from, oh gosh, that I probably started when I was 19 and closed it down around the time I was 30 um, called The Love List. And it ran for 11 years and it was pretty popular. And in that time, I sort of grew out of it and I missed being able to sort of 
write something immediately, publish it, create something like that, and then sort of get it out there in the world and engage with people. But I realized an interesting parallel is that I started The Love List back um, in the financial crisis around 2009 or 10, somewhere around there. Um, and then now here there's another recession, um, albeit a very different kind. And I decided to start Homebody. So I think there must be something inside me that when things go quiet, it makes me feel better to make stuff. That's just me personally. I also think that if you don't feel like doing anything right now, that's also perfectly fine because turning on the news is a lot. But for me, making stuff makes me feel better. I have a journalism background, a publishing background, and now, and that's sort of wound its way into a career in marketing and being a professional creative. I think all of those things blended together make it an easy skill set to apply to doing something like an email newsletter. So it was easy for me to put together. I did it all myself and I already had a pretty sturdy mailing list. And so I started sending it out to them and advertised it a little bit on Instagram and it's grown by leaps and bounds even in this short time just because any distraction, any conversation that acknowledges everything that's going on without making it so incredibly heavy all the time is a little bit of a relief for people. So we have, you know, recipes and roundups to things about, you know, here's how to take a really decadent bath or, you know, here's some great cheap, you know, under $20 work, workout equipment that, you know, you can Amazon Prime, um, things like that. But it's really about making the best of home during an uncertain time. Since we are currently in like unprecedented times economically, how do you address topics that would involve people spending money? Well, we're really sensitive about when we do post links I have a couple of rules about it. One, if we are sharing products, we want to make sure that they're very inexpensive, uh, very affordable, nothing ridiculously overpriced for the most part. The only time I really make an exception to that rule is when we're sharing things from small businesses. At that point, I really don't worry about a price limit or anything like that. But I, that's why I try and mix it in with the Amazon stuff and the $20 stuff and things like that. So you know, we make money on Homebody through affiliate links. So if you click on one of our Amazon links, we'll capture anywhere from a six to 10% commission if you buy the product. With small businesses, we do not use affiliate links. If somebody clicks a link on Homebody and it takes them to a small business and somebody buys something on that website, we get absolutely nothing from it. I just think it's important right now to support small businesses. I've always felt it was important to small, support small businesses, but now really, especially even more so. We really do try to be considerate of that. I wrote a whole essay a couple of weeks ago about sort of what to do if you're in a creative career right now and you're stalled out. I know a lot of people have been experiencing unemployment. I have been there myself. Um, thankfully, right now, I am one of the lucky few to still have a job. But I've definitely been in the boat where I have lost my job and been terrified before. And those are the times when I got the scrappiest. And those were also the times that I ended up planting a lot of seeds 
that ended up sprouting for me in spades a year or two later. I think there are times for doing and there are times for becoming. And right now, if you want to take this time for becoming, that's okay. This is the time where you just want to kind of stew and marinate and sit and absorb then that's fine. But I wrote an, an essay about sort of if you've decided that you want to take this time to do, if you, if you feel like it, if you have the energy for it. And that was really about sort of, this is the time to start your creative pursuit. You know, hey, you really want to start a YouTube channel about cooking? Do it. Who cares if it's good? Just start. And for me, that's always been the way I do things. I dive into it. I don't worry about if it's good. I just start and it'll get better as I keep doing it. If it doesn't get better as I keep doing it, then I let myself let it go. I think this is, if anything, that COVID has reminded us that it's always great to have multiple income streams. And if one of those things that you want to be doing that maybe you never had time to do before is a creative pursuit and you have the energy for it, now is a great time to start, even if it's not so great right now. How do you decide what topics you want to cover? Honestly, I think it's pretty easy to decide what topics we want to cover because everybody's sort of doing the same thing at home right now. Everybody has to cook a heck of a lot more than they did. Maybe everybody's drinking a little bit more than they used to. And they could use a good martini recipe. <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot of commonality in people's lives right now more so than maybe there's ever been because if you have the privilege of being able to stay home you know unless you're living in a mansion with a movie theater and a basketball court for the most part people have a finite amount of things they can do around their house they can read they can cook they can go on the internet they can work out they can walk the dog they can take a bath they can drink a glass of wine etc cetera, etc cetera. so Really, we base what we cover in Homebody around simply making home a little better. And instead of, you know, making yourself your same boring vodka tonic tonight, you know, here's a great martini recipe. On Cinco de Mayo, we, we published a really cool elevated margarita <laughs> uh, from a bartender in Charleston. So I think for us, it's just about sort of basing it around what everybody's doing anyway. I think if you have even the tiniest bit of empathy and compassion, you have a pretty inherent sense of what everybody else is going through and what everybody else is probably looking for. And I know personally, I'm tired of turning on the news and seeing a headline on CNN that says, two more years of misery ahead. I got it. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> need the constant hounding from the news media about how terrible it all is. We all know the circumstances that we're in. And for me, Homebody is about making the best of being stuck at home. What have the responses been like from those who receive your newsletter? The response has been really positive. I've also been really encouraged by the fact that a lot of people in my broader creative community have reached out and wanted to contribute things. We started doing features on different artists and chefs, and we started doing a recurring series called How I Homebody, which is focused around somebody in the larger creative community 
sort of the things that are getting them through. Our last one was about a girl named Jacina, who is a model here in Atlanta, but she's also um, a poet. She's a single mother. She has a charitable foundation and she just shared some things that were helping her get through quarantine alone with a little kid. And a tea that really made her feel relaxed and a candle that she loved and a book that she was reading and little things like that. It's sort of about recommendations more than anything. With things on the internet, a lot of the time there's an ask. People at the end, they want you to buy something, they want you to subscribe to something, they want you to share something, et cetera, et cetera. And my whole idea was just to create something that was a give at the end of the day as if I was sitting with a friend at my dinner table and talking about a book I just read that was great that I thought that they should get. And the tone of the newsletter is very much like that. Everything is written in a very intimate and homey way. I never start anything with like, hey guys, or anything like that. I, I write it as, a, as if I'm writing it to one person and that person is sitting right there with me and I'm talking to only them. Jess Graves is an Atlanta journalist and the founder of Homebody. There's more about Homebody on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, a great read for teenagers, a young adult novel set in Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. New York Times best-selling authors Becky Albert, Holly, and Aisha Saeed originally met through their kids. Recently, they co-wrote a young adult novel about a Jewish boy and a Muslim girl who meet while canvassing door-to-door for a politician they both believe in, despite being too young to vote. The novel is titled, Yes, No, Maybe So. Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed joined me in the winter just before the book was released. Since then, it's had widespread acclaim from critics as well as readers. Let's listen back to our January conversation. Becky Albertalli began. We were definitely inspired by our work canvassing on the 2017 special election in the Georgia 6th District, canvassing for John Ossoff. And for both Aisha and me, it was our first time canvassing. It was way out of our comfort zones. We had no idea what to expect, but we wanted to 
do something. Like we were just desperate to make a difference. We'd been feeling a little bit lost <laughs> since the 2016 election. The experience of canvassing ended up being so empowering that um, that's definitely where the seeds were planted for the book that would eventually be Yes, No, Maybe So. Now, you are both successful authors. Is it twice as difficult to co-write a book? Oh, I think it's twice as fun to oh. co-write a book. It's twice as amazing. I think, to be fair, I, I wouldn't co-write a book with just anyone. It, there's a lot of factors that go into it because you, you're you going to be engaging in a very intimate experience with somebody working on a book from the start to finish. And so Becky and I, we've been friends for a long time, since 2015, and uh, we have kids the same age. We have a lot in common, and we're big fans of each other's work. So when we began canvassing and started getting into that process, this idea kind of organically sprang between us. And I can easily say this is the first co-written book I've ever done. And it has been the best experience of my life to have someone invested in the characters the same way you are, who knows everything before the world does, who knows the plot developments, the characters, and falls in love with them with you. It's it's such an incredible experience. Yeah, it was a blast. We were very much like a fandom of two for this book <laughs> before anybody ever knew about it. Like we were shipping our own characters very hard and it made it so much fun. It just um, was a special, really wonderful experience from start to finish. Well, it's a fun read and Thank intense, you. intense at parts. Let's talk about the structure of the book. How does the story unfold for the reader? We start the story off with Jamie, who is written by Becky, and he is actually not that against politics or political campaigns. His family has some backstory and history with it. His cousin is the assistant campaign manager in the satellite office for this local state Senate election, and he's been helping phone banking, doing all sorts of things, but he doesn't want to canvas. And Maya, who I wrote, she is going through a lot in the story. It's summer. It's Ramadan, so she's fasting. And her parents have just announced that they're splitting up. And her best friend, who she talks to about everything, isn't around because she's getting ready to go to college. And her head is just full of all the things she needs to do to go to college. And so the story is structured around these two teens who meet at a mosque during an iftar fundraiser for this local candidate. And it follows what happens when their mothers decide, hey, you both should take up canvassing. That's a great summer activity for both of you to do. And as they go, we see all the different things, how it goes from being about one thing, doing something that their parents have pushed them to do, to becoming something very personal to them. And each chapter is told from the viewpoint of the character. Jamie, chapter one, Maya, chapter two. And at a certain point in the book, we get their takes on the same experience. So... How did that work out in terms of division of labor? It seems like putting a puzzle together, was it? This is actually my second co-written project. So I did a book with Adam Silvera called What If It's Us that came out in 2018. And we ended up following a very similar process um, because it worked so well for What If It's Us. And I think it worked really well for us, too, where we sat down together 
and developed a pretty detailed outline together. And we certainly ended up deviating from that outline somewhat. But just like all the story beats and just the whole development of the plot and the heart of the story was all stuff that we collaborated on together at the front end. Going into it, we each knew we were going to write one of the two point of view characters. Aisha was always going to write Maya, who is a 17-year-old Muslim Pakistani-American girl. I was always going to write Jamie, who is a white Ashkenazi Jewish boy. And we were able to kind of bring a lot of our own (coughs) cultural backgrounds and religious backgrounds into the story and into these characters. So we basically started with that outline and went chapter by chapter, um, made sure we knew what was going to be happening in each chapter, and then kind of stepped back for a second, wrote the chapter, sent it to each other. Then we live texted our reactions, (laughs) which is like really fun. And also like, it was just a cool experience. It's very hard to trust somebody with your first draft. So it's like a very intimate creative experience. We had to get each other's voices pretty well. You know, I had to write dialogue for Maya, who is Aisha's character, and it had to be convincing uh, as Maya speaking, even from Jamie's point of view, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And intricate. Jamie is self-conscious. He's shy. And yet early on, we learned that he wants to be a history changer. How do the situations in this story help him to overcome his lack of self-confidence? I think of him, I think pretty early on, we made the connection between Jamie and Neville Longbottom from Harry Potter. Like, he's a little bit of a Neville Longbottom. For those who don't know Harry Potter. So for those who don't know Harry Potter, the kind of type of person that I'm thinking of is somebody who is very brave at heart and just has pretty strong convictions, but they don't necessarily believe that they're brave. Uh, Jamie doesn't think of himself as brave, and his convictions are buried under a lot of anxiety, I think. So he is really passionate and becomes more passionate about these causes that he is working toward. But for him, a lot of the growth has to come from basically being pushed into it and like realizing he can do it and finding a way to do that that works for him. He, you know, his anxiety doesn't go away by the end of the book. He is who he is, but he's able to work within that and find a type of activism that feels good for him. And Maya is not political when we meet her, but she evolves she quite does. a bit. How does her involvement in the campaign help her grow. Maya's just going through a lot. And I think her mother hopes that it's a form of distraction, something for her to do to get her mind off of all the different changes that are happening. But as she's going through it, I think she discovers that she does have a voice and that what she does can actually make an impact. She starts seeing it when she knocks on doors and people actually take the brochure or the walk piece from her and realize, oh, there's an election coming. That's an experience Becky and I both had when we were knocking on doors of just that one person, because of us, might go out and vote. And as the book goes on, there's a discriminatory bill that's about to get passed in the state house. And that really throws Maya for a curve. Suddenly, it's not just about electing somebody. It's also about the future of 
her family living here in Georgia, this discriminatory bill would be banning hijab. And there actually have been bills like that in real life. And so suddenly she has something that she truly tangibly wants to fight for, to fight for this bill. Because her mother wears yes. a hijab. Right. Stepping back a moment, we encounter Target so often <laughs> in this story. The store itself feels like a character. <laughs> now, our protagonists are brought together as they work on the political campaign. Who is the candidate and why is he important to the characters in this story? Well, the candidate is a guy named Jordan Rossum. People, I think, especially in the 6th District, but local people from Atlanta may recognize aspects of Rossum. He's very much inspired by John Ossoff, who we love, and, and we were so inspired by his campaign. And if you were following that election, you know um, that John Ossoff didn't win. But what he did was really incredible. Like, if you grew up in the 6th District, like I did, you know what a big deal it was that he came that close. And of course, the 6th District did ultimately flip in 2018. Um, and Aisha and I are now represented by uh, Congresswoman Lucy McBath, who is the first Democrat in decades. So I think there's a lot of homage to John Ossoff in this character of Rossum, who is a young, Jewish, earnest, charismatic guy. When characters are criticizing him, it's usually because he's young. He's very like legitimately passionate about the issues that Maya and Jamie care about. And I think that really means something to them. And and in this book, there's a part where as they're getting ready to canvas, Maya has a sudden thought, who is this guy? Who is he really? We're canvassing for him. He's a Democrat. But who is he? What exactly does he stand for? And then, you know, they look into him and, and he seems great, but still Maya's not fully convinced. And then they look up the other guy and they realize, oh, well, that's somebody we definitely don't want in office. Would you talk about your choice of names? Jordan Rossum. Rossum is awesome. <laughs> Great campaign slogan. And indeed, he is very much the spirit of John Ossoff in how engaging he is and inspiring, especially to young people. Yeah, believe it or not, it was less subtle in the first draft. <laughs> okay. It was Jordan Awesome, right? Yeah, we just called him Jordan Awesome with like an O. Oh, okay. <laughs> And our editor was like, hmm, a little too on the nose there. <laughs> well, what about, okay, let's talk about yeah. the other names. Newton, clearly Newt, correct? <laughs> Maybe. We just came up with the names. Uh, okay, Governor yeah. Doyle <laughs> is not deal. I mean, in a lot of this book, the names and some of the situations are a little bit ripped from the headlines sometimes. Um, there's not anything that tracks 100% with any real person. Right. I do think it's really important to emphasize some of these very real dynamics, like with Governor Doyle in the book, that character who we, don't, we never meet like in person in the book, but he is... One of those kind of business-oriented Republicans. He's not one of those Trumpian kind of populist Republicans. He um, is similar to um, Governor Deal, 
And that ends up being important for the plot because somebody who is coming from that perspective is going to make political decisions a little bit differently. And we wanted to at least try to tap into some of those nuances Mm -hmm. uh, to the extent that we could. Bowser Mm -hmm. is not a name that has any uh, resemblance to who I think he is. How did you decide on Bowser? (laughs) There's some video game analogies. Bowser is the big bad in um, Mario Brothers. So he becomes an analogy because in the Mario Brothers games, uh, he's the one that once you defeat Bowser, then you've won the game. But along the way to get to Bowser, there's lots of other creatures that you have to get through. And so that felt like a very fitting analogy for our current times. There are religious references in each of your characters' narratives. Jamie's family is preparing for his sister's bat mitzvah, and he gets stuck with lots of the chores surrounding that (laughs) event. Poor Jamie. (laughs) Poor Jamie, indeed. Maya and her family are observing Ramadan, and it's the first time for her that her father isn't living at home for Ramadan. Some of the words are not explained. Some of those religious and cultural references, the hamotzi, Hebrew prayer, iftar. Would you explain? So I think growing up, all the books that I read as a kid were about white children and white-based mainstream American stories in that regard. And there were often things I didn't recognize or understand that weren't part of my tradition. We don't celebrate Christmas. Sometimes as a kid, I would read certain practices or celebrations on Christmas Eve and wouldn't necessarily know what they meant. And I figured it out. I figured out through the context. I think that it's intentional um, that we don't need to explain these things. And I think Now, fast forward to 2020, Google exists. So if anything is complicated, we can also look it up. But I wanted this story, and I think, Becky, you could probably agree, the story is for everyone, and the story is also for our respective religious groups to feel seen and understood. And I think excessive explanation can often otherize a story because when other writers write stories that are more the best word to describe it is more mainstream, that we read more about. There's not explanations. Tolkien invented his own language and didn't really provide much context, but we figured it out. And so that was intentional on my part. Yeah, well, and I think another thing that is really cool about this process that ended up being an opportunity for us to navigate this, and I don't think this is necessary in a book to have these sorts of explanations, but because it's a dual point of view book and each character is an outsider to the other's religion, hopefully, you know, the reader has the opportunity if they want to position themselves with the character who is learning about the other religion in in that moment. And our readers may be an outsider. Probably many of our readers are going to be outsiders to both characters' religions. It was really fun to work on this book because I learned so much just about Islam, but also in particular what it means to Aisha, um, which is very similar to kind of... And I felt the same way um, with your story and writing Jamie's story. You are also addressing such topics as social media and its exploitation, peer approval, divorce, sexual orientation, serious subjects. 
How do you strike the proper tone, the authentic voice of this age group? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's certainly a question that is on the mind of every YA author, I would say, because whatever genre you're writing in, if you are writing uh, for this age group, authenticity is the number one most important thing. It can be hard to capture that voice. And also, no author's version of a teen voice is going to work for everyone. And that's even true if the author is a teen, and there are a few. What feels authentic to one reader might feel a little bit off to another reader just based on their own experiences and their own filters. But I think a couple of the elements that have felt really important to us are not ever talking down to our readers. We aren't trying to overly intellectualize to like dazzle anybody with how smart we are as authors. I don't think that necessarily works for a character, a first person point of view character voice. But we aren't trying to overly explain things. I certainly don't write imagining an audience of children, even though some of the kids who uh, read our books can be quite young. How young? I've certainly had as young as nine or 10, which is a little more rare. Most, I would say, are 11 or older. Your target is 14 um, to 18? I think or, that's the young adult category's definition yeah, is 14 and up. I um, would say 12. Yeah. For me, <laughs> I would say 12. <laughs> I mean, it, it really depends on the kid. Aisha, you, you've, you've written, though, for younger audiences yeah, than I have. Yeah, so, Amal Unbound so. was yeah. for younger. Yeah. yeah. Although yeah. I loved it. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not that age. And I, and I was also going to add to that that I think we both, Becky and I, have talked about how our teenage years, those emotional memories are still very strong in us. A lot of YA authors um, have talked about how those teen years have stuck with us. And I think that's part of what drives us to write young adult is because those memories, the heartbreaks, the angst, the change that comes, there's so much change happening during your teenage years. I still remember all of that vividly. It's still with me. And so... I think those things are timeless, those emotions that you go through during adolescence. Well, I'm impressed being several years removed from 17 that each of you are. You mentioned you are mothers of young children, but you do remember these feelings, romantic feelings, so vividly. You're writing for teenagers. Would you talk about including text messages as part of the narrative. Text messages are complicated because they're important. That is how many of us communicate. I communicate with almost everyone except my mom on a regular basis on, uh, on text messages. And so it was important to be true to the story that the teens text. And that, that came pretty easily. But I think the formatting of it for a readership, it definitely, because there's emojis they use, and so it was important that we have those in there. And so I think for the longest time we had, like, Maya might text, and then we have insert shocked emoji or insert awkward face emoji. And so <laughs> I think it was really important to have texting in it, but it definitely was something that did require extra attention to make sure that it flowed for the reader and didn't feel um, jarring or clunky. The book also presents religious tolerance in a way that may surprise some readers. We've established, Becky, you're Jewish. Aisha, you are Muslim. 
is the acceptance, the embrace of these characters by each other's families and friends idealized for the story, or is it more widespread in real life than many of us may imagine? I think we were very intentional about, um, you know, just the way these Jewish and Muslim characters interacted with each other, to what extent, if at all, that ever became an issue between them. And I think a lot of that comes from Aisha and I being very aware of the way our two religious groups in particular can be pitted against each other by the media. We see that a lot. There is a lot of pain that ends up sometimes being focused on each other when in reality we think of these two groups as very similar. There's like a ton of common ground. In the end, how have Jamie and Maya grown? They both find their voice. And I think that's not a spoiler um, because I think this story is an exploration of finding your voice. And I mean, I think they find their voice and they find out that they both find out different things. Maya's always afraid of change. And she finds out that sometimes change is important and necessary and good. And I guess you can speak to it. Jamie finds out. Yeah, you know, I think Jamie feels like he is not up to the task of what needs to be done and, and kind of the big goals that he has uh, for changing the world just seem very out of reach for him, especially at age 17. We were very intentional about making these characters too young to vote. And so I think one of the things that was really important to us um, was by the end of the story, there are some high moments for them and there are some lower moments for them, but I think we just wanted them to feel empowered. So much of what's happening in the world affects even people who are unable to vote and unable to vote in U.S. elections. Like, in particular, our politics affect people all over the world who are not able to vote in our elections, and they absolutely affect people in the U.S. who are not able to vote for many reasons, but including because they are too young to vote. Becky Albertalli and Aisha Saeed are the authors of the young adult novel Yes, No, Maybe So. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. to hear about a new form of musical theater, a Zoomsicle. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. By the way, City Lights is now a podcast. Check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.